This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Glasgow but brought up in Hamilton. When did you start playing football as a youngster and where? Well I started playing at school in Hamilton. I was at St John's School in Hamilton and uh, we had a primary school football team so uh, obviously I played with my pals out with school with the formal uh, school team structure. We played in the street and we played I had a back door with a nice bit of space bit of ground which was ash red ash and we played there. Uh, so, you know, as a boy starting about age seven or eight, I was always interested in football and I played with my pals. Then I managed to get into the school team when I was nine and that was quite young. I was in, only in primary six and most of the boys in fact the whole team was in primary seven. So that was how I started. From there, Craig, obviously, in terms of as a youth, you were you were signed by Rangers. How did that come about and how proud were you to sign for such a big club? Well, I went from uh, that primary school into the secondary school to Hamilton Academy and I played there and I played for the Scottish schoolboys with two illustrious uh, colleagues, uh, the under-18 Scottish schoolboys. I played in the first year I played in that team, I played with Billy McNeil, who was uh, in a neighbouring school in Monroe. He was at Our Ladies High School. And we were both in the Scottish international team. Uh, we managed to beat England at Celtic Park 3 nothing, so we're happy with that. The f- next year, I was still of age for the team, and I played in the team, and Alec Ferguson was in the team. Wow. Uh, so the, the two Scotsmen who have held the European Cup aloft, one as a player and one as a manager, I am privileged to think that I played in the same team as them at school. What was Alec Ferguson like as a player? Uh, he was a better player than people think. He was a very good player. And, uh, you know, I think uh, he actually played for the Scottish team, uh, certainly the league team, when they went on a tour. I think Bobby Brown, in fact, Bobby Brown was the manager. And uh, Bobby picked him, and they went to New Zealand, I think, in Australia, but particularly New Zealand, and, and they, went, they went out to the Far East as well. And I know that, uh, I remember anyway, that, uh, Alec was in that team so he was a striker worthy of being picked for Scotland uh, he had uh, an aggressive nature <laughs> as, as we saw later on when he was a manager but uh, he didn't uh, shirk anything he was a, a, an unusual type in those days because usually the strikers were the delicate guys or the guys who were full of football and not much aggression but Alec was a kind of mini Joe Jordan type, he was very aggressive, he was tough, uh, feared no one, he got tackles in as well as uh, good headers and shots at goal, so, you know, I've got to say he was a very good player. From your time, as you've said there, playing for the <clears throat> the younger Scotland teams, playing for your high school, playing alongside, obviously, legends of the game like yourself and, and Billy McNeil and, and Alec Ferguson, you, 
you obviously played for Rangers as a youth. How did that come about, and what was it like playing for a team like Rangers, even at youth level? Well, uh, people say to me, you played for Rangers. I said, well, I'll correct you there. No, I was signed by Rangers. <laughs> and I didn't ever play for Rangers first team. Uh, when I signed for Rangers as an 18-year-old, that, that the route then was that you went to a senior team and they put you out to a junior team for experience. And uh, that happened to Billy McNeil and it happened to Jimmy Johnston. It happened to all the, the, the Lisbon Lions. Ten of the 11 Lisbon Lions played junior football. And people tend to forget that. And I always say that, you know, they've tried various uh, schemes to try and promote the development of young players. And I think if you go back when Celtic was ruling uh, Europe and Rangers were into European finals, these guys that played in the old firm teams, they went to junior junior clubs. And Rangers, I was one of them. I went to Rangers. Of course, I didn't play in the team, but they put me to a junior team in, in uh, Lanarkshire and Wishaw, Coldness United. It's now a defunct junior team, but I went to Coldness. At the same time, Billy McNeil went to Blantyre Victoria. Jimmy Johnson went to Blantyre Vicks. You know, uh, Bobby Murdoch went to Calmersang Rangers. And uh, the most interesting one of all from the junior game was Steve Chalmers, who scored the most famous goal ever, I think, in Scottish football, yep. that won the European Cup. Steve Chalmers was 23 when he was picked from Ashfield Juniors to go to play for Celtic. So I've got this thing, you know, I've a great feeling for junior football because of the success that boys had in the past playing like. So I went junior, Rangers signed me in a provisional form, they call it, and they put me out to Coltness United. I was there for a year and I was picked for the Scottish Junior International squad, uh, which was good as a young, a very young player. Uh, she was playing well at that time and then Rangers called me up to play in the reserve team. The first team I can remember and the older people who listen to your uh, podcast will uh, remember, they need to be pretty old to remember, Niven, Shearer and Caldo, uh, Davis, McKinnon and Baxter, <laughs> Henderson, McMillan, Miller, Brand and Wilson. And that was the Rangers team that won everything in Scotland at the time and they did very well in Europe also. So, you know, I've, I've got to, early memories of going to Ibrox as a young player. But I got an injury after, I was there a year, I got a bad knee injury, which uh, hampered me a little. And I went on loan to Dundee. And uh, when the Dundee doctor saw my knee, he said, how long have you had that? I said, 18 months. He said, well, that's negligence in the extreme. Rangers, or the big, big club that they are and were, uh, did not have a qualified physiotherapist at that time. They had a remedial gymnast called David Kinnear, a nice chap, and he was good at his work, but they hadn't a qualified physio, so uh, I fault Rangers for neglecting me, I think, and that one or two other young players got injured and didn't get the appropriate treatment. So I'm going uh, great length here, but that's how I started playing a uh, school team into the Scottish Youth, Scottish uh, schoolboys team, then went to junior uh, football for a year, then I came to Rangers and had another couple of years there, but never got into the first team. In terms of that spell, as you said at Rangers, from there you went to Dundee and you worked under um, Bob Shankly, obviously. The younger generation who listen to this podcast are, are very well aware, obviously, of Bill Shankly, his brother and the legendary Liverpool manager. But 
But Bob's obviously a legend to yeah. the game in his own right. If anyone looks at his time at Dundee and his Scottish football as a whole, what was he like to work under? Bob Shank was a, a well, he, a great success as a football manager in in Scotland. He, first of all, he was manager of Fort Lanark, and he tried to sign me for them when I went to Rangers. So he remembered me when I wasn't getting a game for Rangers. I was in the reserves. And I actually felt I was playing quite well in the reserves, so very well. But they outstanding first team, and you know my rival for my position in the midfield was Jim Baxter. So. Uh, it's no shame, I think, to be reserved to Baxter. And then before that, there's a Billy Stevenson, a guy who went transferred to, uh, he got transferred to Liverpool. So Shankly signed me, and uh, he had remembered me uh, because he tried to sign me for Thurland. Now, he was uh, an outstanding football manager. Uh, he won the Scottish Championship with Dundee, and on the way there, uh, we beat Rangers 5 1 at Ibrooks, which is not doesn't happen too often. Now, that was the year of the 1961-2 season, so we're going back a while. <laughs> uh, and we won the Scottish Championship. And then the next year, this was probably even a better achievement, we got to the semi-final of the European Cup. And it, was, it wasn't a Champions League then, it was only the champion team of each country, so it was, uh, it was called the European Cup. And they... Uh, with wonderful results, hammered the champions of Germany, beat them 7-1 at Dundee. OK, lost over there because they, there were no substitutes when I played, so the first target was the goalkeeper, so they kicked him in the head. And Bert Slater was the goalie, he had to go off, and we got an outfield player, Andy Penman, in goal. But one, they lost the game over there, four uh, nothing, but won the game 7-5, and then next the next uh, round was the Sporting Club of Lisbon beat them in two legs. The next round was uh, Anderlecht of Belgium beat them in two legs, uh, beat them 4-1 there in Golzine. Alan Golzine, one of the top players, he scored three goals. And were beaten by AC Milan in the semi-final, which was a terrific uh, achievement for Dundee. Now, I wasn't in these games, but I was in the squad and they uh, went every went on every away trip. I think if substitutes had been in the goal at that time either, I reckon a lot of substitute appearances. <laughs> but uh, I was in that group of very, very good Scottish footballers and uh, you know, it's a, a well known team. Now Celtic won the European Cup four four years later. Many people think that the Dundee team was as good or better than the Celtic team. But Celtic managed to win it, and credit to them. You mentioned obviously two unbelievable moments in Scottish football and Dundee history. There, obviously the league-winning team of sixty-one, sixty-two in that run in the European Cup, as you've said. What was that league-winning season like? And in terms of Shankly striving to get you and the team to be league league winners, um, did did he just fill you all with belief that although obviously Celtic Rangers maybe more high-profile clubs that you had a team that, that deserved to be on merit challenging for the title and, and then winning it? Yeah, well, it was, it was a very good Dundee team Dundee had and I, I rattled you off a team there at Rangers but the Dundee team was Linney was the goalkeeper Pat Linney and they signed Bert Slater from Liverpool but it was Linney first of all Linney, Hamilton and Cox Seath, Ewer and Wishart Smith, that was Gordon Smith who had won it for, with Hearts and Hibs too. Smith, Penman, Cousin, Gilzine and Robertson. 
And if anyone got injured, I got a game. <laughs> and uh, I was lucky to get, I got enough games to get a league championship medal uh, that year. And uh, we only used, in the whole season, they, they used only 15 players uh, in the whole campaign because no substitutes were allowed. And if you started the game and you get injured, you had to, well, you had to go off or you, they put you out in the wing out the road and you stood there and limped about. So it was a different regime then with no subs. So you had to you had to start the game to get an appearance. And therefore I was fortunate uh, that I played in a wonderful football team because they were outstanding and Shankly was a superb manager. I was there, I was at Dundee for five and a half years and I was Shankly's first signing for Dundee and I was his last, the last player he transferred out. <laughs> and I got transferred to Falkirk because I wasn't, I wasn't a regular in the team. I had four knee operations. I was limping along with this knee that got injured at Rangers, and it never really got, you know, 100% fit. Uh, I always was a bit lame, but I was on one leg, but surviving. So I went to Falkirk, uh, who were really struggling when I went. I was 1965-6 season. They were at the bottom of the league, but we managed to get into the middle of the league and stay up. And I was three years there. And then I had to finish because my knee was, uh, well, it was, I was told by the surgeon, you can't continue to play or you'll be a cripple the rest of your life. But I had a very good spell that uh, obviously Rangers enjoyed it there, uh, enjoyed it thoroughly at Dundee and a very good club, Falkirk. So I played for three clubs in Scotland, which was, uh, I've got to say, a very good experience for me. At the same time, I was training to be a PE teacher and a classroom teacher. So uh, I was full-time football, certainly, at Dundee, but I was teaching in the afternoon and training in football in the morning. One player I'm interested to ask you about, who we mentioned earlier, is Alan Gilzean, obviously. Legend at Dundee, but also a legend at Tottenham and won the UEFA Cup and a few other trophies along the way. Just how incredible a footballer was Alan Gilzean? Yeah, he's a brilliant footballer and uh, you know a, a, a good golfer too, but and a very good cricketer. <laughs> played for Cooper Angus at, at uh, cricket, so we had a cricket team at the football club at Dundee, and we we go around and play some of the, the club sides around uh, in Tayside and, and Angus up there. Now, Alan Gozine was either knife for a ball, which was exceptional, and uh, I've got to say to you that he passed away about a year ago, just over a year ago. Mm. And his funeral was in Dundee, and I've never respected a football club as much as I did Tottenham Hotspur because the team, the players that played with him at Tottenham, I think he was 11 years there, the players that played, the big-name players, all came up to the funeral at Dundee, and they were in the club blazers and the club tie. They were absolutely immaculate, wonderful representatives of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. You know, guys like the goalkeeper Pat Jennings and Alan Muller, you know, the, yeah. the famous names, that they were all there. And they were immaculate and they showed great respect to Alan Gozine. Uh, I've got to say, I've been at many players' funerals, but I've never been at one where, you know, the team that he played for so many years ago came and they were immaculate in their club blazers. They flew up, they got a flight. I think as a charter, they, they managed to get themselves up to Dundee 
went to the funeral, went to Dens Park, uh, enjoyed the hospitality there and flew back to London. And I thought that was fantastic. Uh, the, the respect that was shown. Now, I spoke to the Captain Mullery and he said to me, he was the king of White Hart Lane. And he, he was called that because he scored the goals, but he said in all his all-round play, he was the king. He did everything properly and correctly and obviously scored the goals. And he was, you know, he thinks, you know, the, the most legendary Tottenham player of all time. You mentioned, obviously, you played for Dundee, Falkirk and, and Rangers. And I'm interested to know this personally because I'm a primary school teacher myself full-time and you mentioned the fact that, that you worked within education and you trained to be a teacher um, while you were playing as well. Did you always have a passion for education and was it something you always wanted to do? Yeah, it was. I, You know, my family, was, my, my grandfather and my father were teachers and uh, it was in the family. And, uh, you know, I went, I, I trained as a PE teacher. Now, interestingly, in your context, uh, when you did the three-year PE course for a diploma in physical education, if you had attestation of fitness, university attestation of fitness, if you didn't want an extra year, you were then qualified for primary. So uh, I did that and I took the primary qualification as well. So that equipped me to teach in the primary. And then, interestingly, I was teaching part-time in the afternoons when I was training every morning at Dundee and the director of education called me in and I didn't like this, what he said to me. And, <laughs> you know, it was alienate the PE profession because he said, why are you teaching PE every afternoon? I said, well, the, the boys are in there. They're in the, the bookie shop, you know, in the horses or they're in the sucker room. And I'm doing something profitable, you know. And he, but he said, you're well enough paid at the football club. I said, yeah, we're very well paid at the end of the time. He said, it's not for money I do it. You know, it's to try and further my career when I finish it. But also, uh, I do it because uh, it keeps me uh, out of mischief. It keeps me interested. And he said, why don't you? you know, I know he came away with a good line. He said, you know what they call the PE teacher in the school? I said, no, he said, the ignorant acrobat. <laughs> and I, he said, do you want to be an ignorant acrobat all your time? And I said, no. I said, what are you trying to tell me? And he said, I'm trying to tell you that you should try and get academic respectability. Now, you're a primary teacher. You're telling me that you'll have a degree. You'll have a, yeah. a BA degree, I'm sure. Yeah. Or, a, or you'll have a degree and then take another year for primary. Now, in, in my time, the primary teachers were all diploma teachers. and were mostly female. So he said, you need to get academic respectability, surely. And I said, yeah. He said, well, we'll support you through the university if you want to do a course to get a, a, to get a degree. And I said, OK. Which they did now, just at that point, the, the Open University started. So I did an Open University degree. And uh, I get three credit exemptions for my PE qualification. And I needed six credits for an ordinary degree and eight credits for an honours degree. So I started with three, so I just carried on and did the rest. And uh, that gave me the, what he felt was the academic respectability to enable me, my, my subjects were English and geography, so I could teach that in the secondary. But I also did primary too. When I, when I uh, finished uh, full-time football, I went to Falkirk. I went full-time teaching. And rather than teaching PE, which I'd been doing, I was advised again there was a shortage in primary teachers in Lanarkshire, so I went to, well, I taught 
for a while. I taught uh, secondary English for a while. Uh, part-time, that was a peripatetic teacher going from school to school and somebody was off. Then I went primary because there was a great shortage in Lanarkshire and you know, get quick promotions as a primary teacher. In terms of the primary teacher, um, obviously having been a footballer and from from being a footballer and getting into teaching, was it something that that gave you respectability, especially around kind of young boys you were teaching? Because I know for myself, the young boys are teaching the young girls as well. As soon as you mentioned football, their eyes light up. So was that the same for you, or was that a different era and different? <laughs> uh, yeah, they, were, they, they did, and one of my pupils. When I was teaching primary, no, I, I didn't want to teach primary. I said to the director of education, I said, oh, I've got a handbag and uh, <laughs> I thought it was effeminate to be in the primary, which was totally wrong, of course. But uh, I said, no, no, I don't want to be. And he said, look, I'm telling you, if you want promotion, there's such a shortage. And if you're a man in a, in a an, an uncommon, it's uncommon for men at that time, much more common and acceptable now. He said, you'll get promotion very quickly. Well, I did get quick promotion in the primary school, and then I managed to get further promotion to be lecturing in the College of Education. So, uh, but the, the lads in the school, obviously, the year I was playing, and uh, they were following my performances on the Saturday. Now, one of my pupils uh, turned out to be a very good player. In fact, I was player of the year in Scotland, uh, one year, it was a big guy called Andy Ritchie, oh, who played for Morton and Celtic, and he ended up for a while at Motherwell. But Andy Ritchie was one of my pupils, and uh, obviously when he was in the team, we had a very good primary team, and this was teaching in Bells Hill. Uh, and in those days, he always jokes with me, in those days, uh, discipline was... Uh, obviously relatively straightforward then, because you had the... The threat of corporal punishment, you could belt them. And uh, Andy always reminds me when uh, I gave him three of the belt. <laughs> and uh, the voice says, well, it was so, and I hated you. But he, he always jokes when he talks about it. And they respected that level of discipline and that, that uh, how can I put it, method of control. Now, obviously, you wouldn't get away with that nowadays. But uh, <laughs> when I was teaching, the discipline was easy to administer because there was this deterrent, which was the belt. Absolutely, and I can imagine, obviously, in that era, how different it would be, obviously, to the to the job I've, I've got now, as you say, when the discipline side has definitely changed. Then, in terms of your coaching career, Craig, you showed a keen interest in being involved in coaching, and you became assistant manager at Motherwell, first of all, in 1974. How did that role come about for yeah. you? Yeah, well, that came on coaching. While I was uh, playing at Dundee, we were encouraged to go to the coaching course uh, to become coaching. While we were playing, you know, that was the time to do it when you're young and you're enthusiastic. And we went, and so I was a PE guy originally, so I was quite familiar with the teaching environment. And I went down to Largs and for three years, and I eventually got my A license, and that got me qualified to teach, uh, to teach football, you know, and, and of course you met the luminaries of the game at that time who were uh, Eddie Turnbull and uh, Willie Ormond and uh, well, contemporaries of mine on the course were guys like Alec Ferguson and Jim McLean. Uh, I, I mean, it was populated with legendary names, so you went down there and you got 
into their company and you learn so much listening to the three McLean brothers, for example, who were wonderful in football, Jim Woolley and Tommy. And, uh, you know, there was a great uh, response from most clubs. You know, I would say the old firm weren't that enthusiastic about the courses, but still guys like Tommy Burns would go on the course and Roy Aiken and people like that. So you, you managed to get a, a network of contacts and uh, and one of the contacts I just bumped into the, on the course and obviously was coaching in the same pitch and we got on very well and uh, we were trying to do our course and it was Willie McLean. So when Willie became the manager of Motherwell, I was teaching in in Hamilton and uh, I was sorry, living in Hamilton, I was teaching in Bellshill and uh, Willie invited me to be assistant manager of Motherwell. So that's how I really got in initially. It was just through, I think it's, football is an old pals act, you know, <laughs> and if you've got a pal or you know someone who's got the job and uh, you, if you look through the game, uh, throughout the game, you'll see that uh, managers have their pal as their assistant uh, and it's usually, that's the route uh, to get started anyway. So I, I had seen about years as the assistant manager at Motherwell and they were a very good team at the time. In the Premier League, it was old first division, so it wasn't Premier League. But they were right, competing at the top and getting into cup uh, semi-finals regularly. You know, it was a very good uh, model team. And therefore, I was there. And then uh, I was part-time because I was still, uh, at that time, I was still teaching. And it's amazing that uh, I could be the part-time. In fact, I think I was working at that time in the College of Education. I could be the part-time uh, manager of model and full-time lecturer in primary education. So, <laughs> because, as you know, having done the courses, that it was only 32 weeks uh, student time. Yeah. Uh, you had two 11-week uh, semesters and a 10-week one. So, you, and you had, so 20 weeks of the 52, there were no students in the college, so that meant I could be full-time in the football at that time. So it worked in quite nicely. Uh, and then when the, the, that was, the students came in in October, we had done July, August, September, the pre-season, and we were ready to go. In fact, it was going, and Willie McLean was the manager. He did the training himself during the day, and I came at night, and I had to work for the part-time players. So... It was a fabulous time to be involved in the, the senior game, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. I've got to say that after a few years, then I got an invitation. Billy McNeil was the manager of Clyde, yep. and Billy went to he got the job at Aberdeen, and they recommended me to Clyde because, again, an old pals act. I'd played with him in the Scottish schoolboys. I'd been friendly with him. I'd trained at Celtic as a boy with him. And they recommended me to Clyde, so I got the Clyde job. And I was nine years with Clyde, so <laughs> uh, I've got a great soft spot for uh, Clyde Football Club. In terms of Clyde, obviously when you were manager there, you were still lecturing in primary teaching at the time. How did you balance both of those out? Well, that was fine. I was just saying to you that uh, it fitted quite nicely because, you know, the Clyde were a part-time team, so we trained three nights a week. And... Uh, Sometimes if it was a busy part of the season, it was two nights a week, so it was different from Motherwell. Motherwell trained every day. Now, obviously, I couldn't get off my my duties at the college to, 
to do the daytime training, but I did in July, August and September. Then when the students came in in October, uh, I did not go during the day. I was working with my students and visiting schools. And I trained the part-time boys at night at all. Now, at Clyde, it was part-time only. So it was actually a better job to match my full-time job, which, of course, was teaching or lecturing. So, you know, I couldn't have been uh, happier because I had two... My hobby was teaching and my hobby was football. So I imagine two jobs, getting paid for your hobby from two sources. And then I think the, the thing that changed my whole life was a telephone call. I was a lecturer at Craigie College of Education in here, and I got a message from the secretary. She said, you have to come to the office. There's a man wants to, you to phone him at lunchtime. And she had a phone number, and I, and I said, this is McCoyst winding me up, you know. <laughs> uh, and she said, it's a Mr. Ferguson from Aberdeen. So I said, the number was an Aberdeen code, so I thought, this is not a wind-up. So I phoned, and it was Alec Ferguson. And because of my friendship with him in the schoolboys team and the youth team, this was a conversation, and I'll try and abbreviate it. He said, Brun, how would you like the holiday of a lifetime? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He says, I have to take the Scottish team. Jock's team died, you know that. He says, I've asked me to take the team to Mexico to the World Cup. I would like you to join the staff. Uh, but the holiday of a lifetime, he says, we've got three games to play, but we won't let that interfere with our enjoyment, <laughs> he said, which, which I thought was good. Uh, and I think the results proved that was the case. But I said, well, look, I'm working. I can, I'm not a full-time footballer. Like, he says, ask for a, a month's unpaid leave of absence. And I did that. And I, I put a nice letter to the principal and the chairman of the governors of the college could I get a month's unpaid leave of absence? And to the eternal credit, I, I never can thank them enough, I got a reply saying, you can have a month's paid leave of absence. There are no students here at the time, or very few, uh, towards the end of June, when you, the World Cup was on, and uh, it's a great honour for the college to have someone in the staff of the Scottish team going to Mexico. So that was me... Uh, that was a change in my lifestyle, really, because when I went there, and Alec Ferguson was offered the job of Scotland, and he turned it down. He wanted to stay in club management, and they gave the job, Scottish job, to Andy Roxburgh, and they invited me to be his assistant, and also full charge of the under-21 team. So I left teaching, and went in 1986. That was. Yeah. I went full time into football, and that kind of changed my life. So, you know, I taught from when I trained. You know, from nineteen, I finished I think sixty-two, yeah, till eighty-six. I taught that length of time, and then I left teaching. I went into full time into football. You mentioned obviously the eighty-six World Cup there, and the staff that Ferguson had at that World Cup. Yourself, Walter Smith. Archie Knox, Andy Roxburgh. When you look back at that coaching staff, just incredible football people and legendary figures in there. Yeah, well, Andy actually wasn't on the staff. Andy was the technical director of Scotland, but he wasn't. The three of us were there with with Alec, but Andy was Andy had gone ahead and looked out the accommodation and everything, but he never he wasn't with the team. Uh, 
uh, I think he had so much in his plate, you know, to own the coaching courses back here in Scotland. So Andy didn't, he, he wasn't working with the, the international team as we were. But it was a wonderful experience for me. And uh, obviously when I came back, Alec was the manager of Aberdeen at that time. Uh, and uh, there was noises of them going to Arsenal or to, or to Tottenham. And uh, both were making representation to him, but he decided to stay with Aberdeen. But then a few months later, uh, in September, October, the Manchester United job came up and he left Aberdeen to go there. But he wanted the same club management rather than be the Scotland manager. But it was a very good uh, experience uh, to work all these games with, you know, we had uh, five games before the tournament and the tournament involved qualification beating Australia in two legs and then going to Mexico and uh, we had five friendlies so you know I was I, I was 10 games listening to I would say the best football manager on the planet uh, I think the best there's ever been uh, Sir Alec Ferguson so it was a great privilege to be friendly with him and to listen to his is the way he worked with the players. In terms of that squad, if we think of some of the incredible, you, you, you'd be right to say world-class players, obviously Graham Soonis was in that squad, guys like Paul McStay, mm-hmm. Gordon Strachan. Um, what were they like to work with in, in terms of the squad as a whole? Were they a, a chirpy bunch? Because there was also some interesting characters, Charlie Nicholas and Frank McAvaney, well, to name a few. Aye, exactly. You know your football because these were, these were characters, all right. And <laughs> uh, what I've found in my football time throughout my career in football is the bigger the star the easier it is to deal with and what I found was that uh, these guys whatever you asked them to do they did it there was no they didn't say what are we doing this or anything like that you know it's the guy with two or three caps that he thinks he's a player but, (laughs) but these guys were all experienced international players and the names you've mentioned you know, he had McLeish and Miller and Leighton and Absolutely. Alan Ruff and, you know, the two goalies. You know, when you add these guys, Morris Malpass, to the ones that you've mentioned, there was a fantastic level of uh, ability and that quality in that squad. And you're right about in the midfield and it stays in the Sunnis and the Roy Aiken. These guys, fabulous uh, footballers. Uh, I remember he had uh, Jim Bett was in the group and uh, Eamon Bannon was in the group. I'm trying to think, Davy Cooper was in the group. I mean, it was a, f- a group of fabulous Scottish international players. So we, uh, Morris Johnson, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, was in the group. Yes, he was. So you uh, can imagine, and that my only advice from Alec was, he says, look, None of your fancy routines, Craig. These guys don't want to be put in a, a position of embarrassment where you're asking them to do something complicated and it, and it, it's not working and they, they think, oh, we, they, they switch off. Whereas I was used to working with part-time players at Clyde and I knew them and they knew me and I could take time to teach them the rotation routines and things. <laughs> and Alex said, no, none of that with the international team. Just keep it very straightforward and simple because they don't want to be put in a position whereby they, 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 they're embarrassed. You know, if you're, I, I did quite elaborate, uh, uh, how can I say, rotation routines at shooting and passing and things. A lot of them were uh, borrowed from basketball and made them into football routines. 
but he said, don't have any of that nonsense. <laughs> like, and it was straightforward, simple stuff. And he was straightforward and simple with the players as well. There was none of this, you know, I, I, you know, you hear about the hairdryer and things. Like, he never raised his voice once, all the time. I was with him with the Scottish team. He just spoke to them as, I'm speaking to you conversationally. Yeah. It was a nice conversational tone he had when he was having a team meeting. And it was more democratic than people would believe. Things like if we got a free kick, uh, any, any good ideas that you've got at your club, you know, that kind of thing. It wasn't you're doing this and you're doing that. It was far more uh, democratic than, than you would ever believe. But a great experience for me, I've got, I must admit. Working with Alex Ferguson so closely, what would you say his main qualities were at that time? Well, you know, I've heard his lectures and I've read his book and leadership. And his quality was uh, he was through and through a football man. He he knew the game. He was uh, immersed in football, but he had standards. And he he had this phrase he always used to say, you know, didn't he say to the players, but he said to us, look, the standards you set are the standards you get. Whatever you want, you get. You're the manager. And without saying, look, I'm the manager, you have to do it because I'm the manager. The standards you set, if they see you setting good standards, and they responded that way, and uh, you know, he had standards of everything, even the way they travelled, the discipline. Uh, so his discipline was superb. And if you watched any Scotland team, or, even, or any Manchester United team, they always saw their players on flannels and the tie. The tie was up at the neck, and the music and the it wasn't individual headsets, it was team music on the bus and the in the dressing room you know he had terrific standards of uh, organisation and of discipline uh, and obviously he, he, his eye for the game was exceptional you know he could after 10 minutes he had the opposition completely summed up <laughs> and he would make his alterations accordingly and they say that to Aberdeen the players up there when he was the manager there you know he was very very good at uh, uh, making changes that were going to win the game and make a substitution and uh, and uh, tactically he was on the ball he wasn't the kind of manager that was out taking training all the time you know I think when he was uh, Aberdeen Archie Knox did most of the training same at Manchester United but he did the team talks the team meetings he imposed the discipline he uh, insisted on certain standards that uh, they had to adhere to, and the whole thing was, you know, super efficient in my opinion. And uh, you know, I was, like you, I was trained as a school teacher, and you know, you get a training about organisation and discipline and things like that. Well, I like wasn't trained in that, but he just had it naturally, and I think he maybe worked for good managers when he was playing, but he certainly had a terrific gift. And, and my, I keep saying he's the best manager there ever has been and ever likely to be. I don't think anyone else will win as many trophies. Like, I don't know exactly how many, but we're into the 30s, I think. And uh, that is quite, quite exceptional. I think the only man coming near him in terms of winning things is uh, Marcelo Lippi, the Italian guy. But I saw a, a lecture he gave and they put his CV up and he had about 27 or something. Uh, uh, it was mentioned, and I'm sure it's true that Alec Ferguson is more. 
In terms of moving on from 1986 and your time with Alec Ferguson, um, as you say, you were the assistant manager to, to Andy Roxburgh and you took charge of some of the, the youth teams and your Scotland under-21 team in 1992 got to the semis of the European Championship, beating Germany along the way, which, considering where obviously we are now, is just an incredible thought. Who were some of the guys you had in that team? Well, the, the, the under-21 team nearly all graduated to the national team, and that was made it easier for me when I got the job, you know, but... The under-21 boys, you know, the one that had most caps was Christian Daly. But, uh, you know, I, I, wonderful guys like Peter Grant was in the under-21 team and Tommy Tommy Boyd uh, was in the under-21 team with Paul Lambert in that team. Uh, I'm just going through them. Brian Gunn was the goalkeeper and for some time in that team we had... Uh, I'm trying to get through them. Alec Ray was in the team. We had Pat Nevin. You know, we had a wonderful uh, ability in the under-21. I would say to you before, we were in the semi-final of Europe in 92, the under-21s. We were in the quarter-final of the under-20 World Cup in Chile. And we were only beaten in penalties by Germany and that. Uh, and it was a terrific achievement because only three European teams get into that tournament. Uh, you'd be the top three in Europe to get to the under-20 World Cup and we went over to uh, to play in, in Chile and did exceptionally well over there and we were only beaten penalties and then the under-21 team was a very, very good team uh, you know, when you asked me to uh, identify more well, Billy McKinley, I'm just going through them if I sat and had a bit of paper and pencil, I could give you a, a, a really good team. Uh, we had Booth and Jess from Aberdeen, who were, uh, Scott Booth was uh, quick and electric, and Ian Jess was a legend at Aberdeen, they loved him, uh, as well as the old firm guys. Um, my first under-21 captain was uh, Peter Grant, I remember that, because Peter was just a leader, and still is, a smashing guy. Uh, so he was number 21 team as well. So, you know, I had a very a successful and enjoyable time with the underage teams of Scotland. And we had an under 16 team, I think, too. I don't think I know. Uh, we were in the World Cup final with yeah. under 16. Uh, and we were beaten by Saudi Arabia. So everything was going well at the SFA at that time. All the youth teams, the under 21, the under 20, and under 16, were qualifying and progressing well in, in European competition. After that, obviously, the success of, as you've mentioned there, um, World Cup final with the under-16s in 1989, and then the semi-final, as we mentioned, with the under-21s in 1992. You were appointed the Scotland manager in December '93, and you were the caretaker for the games against Italy and Malta after Andy Roxburgh left. Um, what was it like when you were appointed as the Scotland manager full-time? How proud were you? Well, I didn't think for I didn't think for a minute I was going to get the job because there were mentioned games names that you mentioned in the past like Graham Soonis was I think favourite he was getting mentioned in all quarters and Alec McLeish at that time too and I was the assistant to Andy and I wasn't here but I think the success we had with the youth teams brought me to the attention of the international committee and they, they asked me to take the two 
match is uh, when Andy resigned and uh, we were beaten by Italy which was no disgrace actually over there and I remember that game quite vividly because Italy had to beat us to get to the World Cup in America in 1994 and uh, San Siro was absolutely sorry about it was a big that was at that time it was the Olympic Stadium in Rome mm-hmm. was absolutely jam-packed uh, 80,000 in there and the firecrackers were going off and you know it was they were hyper in Italy because a victory over Scotland would see them going to the World Cup and they well, they were one up quite early, I've got to say, and after four minutes, and I, I was looking for a hole in that Olympic track to jump into, <laughs> to hide. But uh, we managed to ease our, ease our way back into the game, and we, we got to half time, uh, uh, one down, and then we, we scored an equaliser, which uh, surprised me. But we eventually lost 3 1 uh, over there, but played, I think, reasonably well and get a bit of credit for that performance. And, of course, we had to play. We played Malta as well when I was at temporarily in charge, and we beat them, and we played well there. So I got, I got offered the job uh, in Malta uh, after the Italy game, and uh, I was obviously... You don't turn in a chance to manage your country. So I was happy to accept the job and to do what I could... Uh, but everything was done, you know, relatively cheaply then. You know, when I was assistant to Andy, I was also in charge of the 21 team. <laughs> so now they have a full-time assistant, a full-time uh, under-21 manager. You know, it's much more generously staffed than it ever was uh, in my time. So I was doing... And it was great to be working with the national team and also to earn that because in those days... The fixtures matched. Number 21 played on the Tuesday and the first team played on the Wednesday and the opposition was the same. And they changed the whole structure in recent years. And the number 21 uh, programme is totally different. So you couldn't have that set up where uh, you, you were going in the same charter flight to the same venue to play an away game. It's all changed now, but uh, it, it suited the arrangement we had and it worked quite well. And I think when you're an assistant and you're personally friendly with your manager, it makes a big difference. I think it's essential that that's... And it's the same in teaching and team teaching. They say that if the teachers are not friendly socially, out with the class, out with the school, team teaching won't operate effectively. And research has proved that in America. So it's the same in football. If you're friendly with your colleague, and I never ever called my assistant assistant, I called colleague. If you're friendly with your colleague, you've got a far more chance of success. You went obviously from Scotland didn't qualify for the 94 World Cup. As you've just described, you were only in caretaker charge towards the end of that, so um, that wasn't something that was really your remit at the time. But the first major tournament you could have qualified for was Euro 96, and, and you did qualify for that with Scotland. How proud an achievement was that to qualify? And obviously, with the tournament being held in England, did that give you an extra incentive yeah. to make sure you got there? Yes, I'm, I'm not, uh, Callum, I'm not patronising you, but your, your knowledge is great, your preparation, <laughs> and you, you anticipated what I was going to say to you there because when the tournament, was, the final tournament was in England, the Euro 96, I was warned, I was threatened really by the chief executive, and he told me that if 
if we're not there, they more or less said, if we're not in England and it's next door and we don't qualify, uh, you'll be out of a job. You know, if we can't say tolerate failure to get to Euro 96 now, uh, and that was a, a fairly uh, demanding statement. <laughs> so we managed, and, and I've got to say quite proudly that uh, we had 10 games to qualify. And in the 10, game, 10 games, we lost only three goals. And if two years later, to qualify for the World Cup in 98, we had 10 games to qualify, and we lost only three goals. So, And we didn't play defensively, but we were organised to the nth degree. I knew wherever we throw in was going, wherever free kick, you know, and we, we defended uh, conscientiously, as you can tell by the goals against. And we weren't the most free-scoring team, but uh, we were the most difficult team to beat. Uh, and uh, I give great credit. I changed the system. It was 4-4-2, was the traditional system, but the successful teams in Europe at club and international level at that time were from Germany. And in Germany, the, the top club teams like Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund played 3-5-2. The German national team that won Euro 96 with Bertie Volz, the manager, played 3-5-2. So, and I had to play against the German under-21 team the year or two before it. And they, I watched them and they were three. So we might stop 3-5-2 against them and beat them. And that made me convinced that at that time, the game's changed quite a lot recently, but at that time, the successful system was 3-5-2. Now, we had a, a wonderful back three, uh, superb goalkeeping, and the teams just couldn't score against us. Uh, to lose six goals in 20 qualifying games, I think, was a great credit. I mean, when we went to Euro 96 uh, in the tournament, uh, I think we lost... Uh, England scored two goals. I think that was it. Uh, I'm trying to count. We, 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 we played Holland the first game. They didn't score. We yep. played Switzerland. So, I mean, the defensive one. Now, we did not play deliberately defensively, but we were, I think, quite well organised, very well organised. And with two wonderful goalkeepers, Leighton mm-hmm. and Gorham. And uh, they, were, they were hard to score against. So, And a back three, which was magnificent, uh, Calderwood, Henry and Boyd. And they had everything that you want in a back three. Calderwood was the tackler. He could nobody could get past him in a one-to-one situation. Henry, no one could beat him in the air, and Boyd, no one could beat him for pace. So we had a terrific combination at the back there. We had the, the three real ingredients that you needed. That we had the, the tackling, the heading, and the speed. And they all didn't have the three of them, but among the three. We had uh, the qualities which are required for good defending. And we can alter the back three according to the opposition to put, you know, if there's a big fella, we would put, obviously, put Henry in his area. And we played a zonal back three. Whereas in Germany, they played a man-for-man back three, but uh, we, we used it zonally. And I, I unashamedly spoke to people about the German. I talked to Bertie Wolves before he became the manager here. Uh, and they didn't know we were going to be playing against them. I spoke to him and he, he told me how they played that 3-5-2 and I spoke to primarily Paul Lambert who played that system in uh, Dortmund 
And how did they play? Murdo McLeod played in Dortmund. But at that time, they were still playing a back four. But so I was unashamedly asking the boys when they came what they did at the clubs and how they played and what organisation. And that helped us to refine what we were doing. And uh, so it was a terrific achievement, I think, to only lose three goals and qualify for uh, Euro 96. And then we qualified back-to-back for the World Cup in 98. In terms of Euro 96, I'm interested to know, Craig, (coughs) pardon me, um, the group consisted of England, obviously the hosts, all the attention on them, get into that. Holland and Switzerland. Were you at all phased by that group at all? No, no, I was never phased by any of it. I mean, I'm maybe that, uh, <laughs> I was going to say a bit thing about simple Simon here, but you know, no, no opposition. You know, we've had to, we had to play Brazil, the World Champions, in the opening game of the World Cup, and I wasn't phased by that either. But I was not. I was looking forward to it. We'll go to the Euro '96 first. You know, Holland were a brilliant team at the time, but uh, we had a, we had a, a good system against Holland. You know, and I I watched them, and I always looked at the opposition very very carefully and edited up stuff to show the players. And uh, Der Kamp was the main man, and I felt if we eliminate, I just added, I said, if you're fighting Indians, you kill the chief. Now, the chief in their team was Bergkamp, who sat off the front. Now, we just needed to put a man, man for man, on Bergkamp, which helped us. And the two white players, uh, it, was a, it was a different system we had to use sometimes against them because they had three up, and we had to play a back four against Holland. But we, we marked Bergkamp, and we marked the two white players, End and Overmars, wherever they were, and they had Ruth Hullet through the middle. <laughs> Quite a formidable uh, team. So, and I had played them in, in a friendly and uh, before we went to that uh, tournament in Euro 96. So, it suited the, the structure we had to play against Holland and, and I liked playing against them because we knew that uh, they were predictable and some of them were, could be intimidated a wee bit by our aggression. You know, they were the football, quality footballers, but they didn't all have enough heart, I felt. And they didn't like playing against Scotland because Scotland were always, we were anyway, our teams were up and at them and get into the tackle and challenge and fight. And, you know, they, you could sense they were a wee bit, uh, you know, the, the, the wingers in particular, Overmars and Zenden, they were a wee bit twitchy when they saw what was, they were up against. So we managed to do that in the first game and the next game was Switzerland and they, they, they were a good team at the time. We got a very good goal. Uh, uh, McCoy scored a great goal. They ran to me at the side of the pitch and put his arm around me and the press said to him after, why do you go and hug the manager? He said, I didn't go and hug him. I went to ask him why I wasn't on from the start in the previous game. <laughs> <laughs> Which is typical of McCoy. Uh, so... And I, throughout my time with the team, always looked for the humour in, in any situation. And you get plenty when McCoy was around, or, or uh, Tosh McKinley was around, or uh, uh, Billy McKinley was around, or we, we Spencer, John Spencer. There was always plenty of humour on the go. So it was a it was a privilege and a joy to work with the Scottish team. 
and the Euro 96 was a, a very heartbreak, heartbreaking tournament because of the last game you know, against England when I think you know we missed the penalty otherwise I think we might well have qualified Well as you say in terms of that England game people obviously look back now especially the English press in hindsight the 2-0 win Sheeran and Gascoigne obviously were the memorable moments but People, I think, forget that day. The man of the match was David Seaman, and we played really well that day. And Gary McAllister, uh, obviously, unfortunate yeah. with the penalty, but what a player he was for you during your time at Scotland. Yeah, I was outstanding. Yeah, we had we had a, we had a lot of, I was commenting on the back three, Collingwood, Henry, and Boyd, but we had two wonderful midfield players. Uh, well, we had three, but uh, uh, we had McAllister on one side, and we had uh, uh, on the other side Collins. And, and they were outstanding lads. And, you know, we had uh, just Stuart McCall was still battling away in, in Euro 96 as well. And, you know, when you think of these players and look at what we've got in the present day, I think these guys were far better footballers. People say to me, you know, they're all about the manager this and the manager that. I said, really, the manager has a bit to do. But the main reason why we've not qualified in the last 20 years or so is we haven't had the quality of players that I had. And, uh, you know, I had wonderful players uh, by comparison. And so people say, oh, well, you know, this, get rid of this manager, that manager. I, I don't get who the manager is. With, with some of the resources he's got, and, and every manager that we've had, every Scotland manager, he's looked, he's combed the world for the best Scottish players. And the best Scottish players are, are picked, but they're not as good as they used to be. Uh, and, and that's that's a, a value judgment I'm making, but it's a sincere one, it's a genuine one. You know, when I think of the quality that we had, you know, if you put McCoy and Johnson up front against what we've got nowadays, you know, and, and if you if you're at the back, you've got Colin Henry, you've got Collard, Colin Collarwood, you've got Tommy Boyd. I mean, we haven't got anything in that... Uh, Categories quality at the 